Hey, hey everyone, welcome to Manoj Speaks podcast and this is your host Manoj Kumar. One of the deep curiosities that people on earth have is what is outside of earth. Today I have the pleasure of spending time with Jonty Horner, an astronomer and an astrobiologist at the University of Southern Queensland, Australia. He's a researcher in exoplanets, the solar system and habitability. Welcome, Jonty. Hey, thanks for having me. How is your leave going at the moment? Oh, it's good. I'm actually managing to not spend too much time working, which is kind of nice. It's terrible. <laughs> we keep talking about good work-life balance and, you know, try and teach all my students that I work with and my colleagues that you should leave work at work and, you know, only work the eight hours of the day because you need to have a life as well. But it's one thing saying it and another thing putting it into action. So I have been doing a bit of work while on leave, but a lot less than I was doing when I wasn't on leave. So it's been nice and restful, really. But your work is, the way I read it and the way I look at it, is it's fun. And I think this is actually one of the real challenges that academics face. You know, we see a lot of discussion these days about that work-life balance and about people burning themselves out and stuff like that. And part of it is that the workload model people work on the, on the university sector in terms of the way that teaching and everything is done isn't quite suited to the task so people have to work longer hours anyway perhaps than they should do and there is kind of a community expectation that you do that and we're fighting to change that we're fighting to be sensible but at the same time when you do your hobby as a job it is actually really hard to disconnect so i think one of the problems that people face especially when the research is what they love is that they do actually end up working more hours than they should do because it doesn't feel like work it feels like you're doing something fun you really love it it's really hard to turn off and that's wonderful, but it is also a challenge because it does mean that you run the risk of burning yourself out, of getting worn out, of getting very discouraged. So it's hard balance to find. How did you get attracted with space, galaxy and the universe? I got dead lucky when I was about five years old. My parents recorded something on a VHS tape for me and, you know, whatever it was is lost in the dis distant depths of time. But they caught on the tape, 10 minutes of a TV show in the UK called The Sky at Night, which was an astronomy program that at the time was presented by this big old fat guy with a monocle called Sir Patrick Moore, who, until he passed away about a decade ago, was a TV host who had been hosting a program for the longest running without a break of anyone on the planet. a great deal about the inner planets but what about those remote members of the sun's family uranus neptune and pluto they are not spectacular but i sometimes feel they are rather neglected because they are fascinating worlds and this is a good time for talking about them because they are all on view now and they are all pretty near opposition you know the first episode was 1959 and it just kept going and going and going it was astonishing and he was a mad enthusiast, and that basically got me hooked on space. I grew up in the north of England during the 1980s when you had the minor strikes, when you had a pretty rough time, and I grew up in a fairly challenging area, low socioeconomic area. But I got really lucky in that I discovered my passion when I was really young. And also in, the, in an area where there wasn't much aspiration because of all the problem, you know, problems going on, I had the support from my parents who... You know, really gave me the opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do. They both worked really hard, but they supported me in following my dreams. 
and I joined my local astronomy society building on that um, with my dad taking me every week when I was about eight years old. And I'm still a member today, even though it's all the way around the other side of the planet. But that really helped me keep that interest up despite difficult times at school and despite living in an area where most people didn't see the point of studying, you know. So it was really good to have that outlet to help me through, particularly teenage years, and to direct my studies so that I knew what I should study when I went to university to turn my hobby into a job and also where I should study it. So going to the Astronomy Society was really vital as well. Did your parents worry? Perhaps if this hobby became a career, would you actually make money out of it? Not really. I mean, I think um, certainly if there was, my parents kept it well away from me. I'm an only child, but I'm sure they had plenty of discussions while I was asleep or otherwise occupied. But at the end of the day, I think they realise that if you go to university and you study, even if you don't end up doing what you love, you'll end up making use of those skills and you'll find something that pays the wages. And I think their attitude has always been, it's better to be happy and scrape by than to be miserable and wealthy. You know, If you're doing what you love, there's so much value in that anyway that you can cope with everything else. Now, I'm, I'm fortunate now I'm a professor, so I get a pretty good living nowadays. But you know, I didn't start earning until I was 25 years old, where the kids I went to school with would have had seven years of earning under their belts at that point, would have already had mortgages, would have already had cars and houses, and I had not a penny to my name. You know, I'd done my PhD, I'd done my undergrad studies. But the flip side of it is I then got to go on this fabulous journey where I've worked around the world. You know, I've only recently got into a position where I can do anything other than rent a house. That's the downside of this kind of migratory life that you live as a researcher. But the flip side is I get to do what I love and I've had a much better life for it than just staying at home in Yorkshire and working at the local shop. You use the word love, love what you do. What is it about space and, and astronomy and, and the universe that you fell in love with? What, what was that key ingredient that got you so hooked and fascinated? I guess it's just a deep and abiding fascination with how things work and the different stuff that's out there. I've always had a particular interest in the solar system and particularly like comets and meteors. But I really enjoy just going out, sitting out under the stars, relaxing, you know, going out for the famous meteor showers and sitting out with friends and having a drink or two and spending a few hours just watching natural celestial fireworks, you know, fireworks of the kind that don't scare the animals so everybody wins. It's just fascinating and fabulous, and it's really awesome to be able to dig in and actually contribute and to try and work out how the universe works. And I think it's... Part of being a scientist is staying a child in a lot of ways. If you go to a school and you give a talk to a classroom full of five-year-olds or eight-year-olds, there isn't that world weariness there in general. They've just got this utter fascination with everything. And no matter what you tell them, it's why. Why does it work like that? What causes this? And they've got questions coming out from everywhere. The most crazy questions because they want to dig down and understand how things work. And to me, being a scientist is just keeping that childlike thing in your head, but being trained how to approach the questions. So not just thinking of the questions that you ask, but actually how you might find an answer. It's really just embracing your inner child, though, which is kind of fortunate. It just means I've never really fully had to grow up. Like they say, never lose the child within you. Absolutely. You said you were fascinated by the way the universe works. So my question is, how does the universe work? And... Why do they work the way they do? Because it does is part part of the answer. And the reason I say that is that you can imagine that we evolved and lived in a universe that was very different, that worked very differently. And we'd look at how it works and we could see that it works. But 
you know, we think that's just how things are. And it's a bit like that with our universe. It would work regardless of our understanding. It was working quite happily for 14 billion years before we were here. It'll be working perfectly happily for trillions of years afterward. And we have this natural bias to think this is the only way things could be because this is the way we see them. And we're getting off into philosophy here. It's kind of really interesting to think about, I guess, the impact that our perception has on this is not where we're studying something that would work even if we weren't here to see it, if that makes sense. So what we're trying to do is essentially put a cage around things, a wrap around things and say we can understand this when you've got a universe that is infinitely complex and we have minds that are brilliant, but they're not infinitely complex. So we're already at a disadvantage. The universe is more vast and more wonderful than we can imagine. And the way we do it is we break it down into manageable pieces and we gradually build understanding. And so our understanding of the universe, our understanding of the solar system, whatever, is built like a tower. We come up with an idea that we think works and then we test that idea. And if it works, we then build the next layer and we gradually get a deeper and deeper understanding, building on the earlier models and the earlier realizations. So it's one of these things you, you occasionally see quotes from people saying, everything there is to know, we already know. And famously, I think there was a US patent clerk who said everything that will ever be discovered has been discovered back in 1899. You know, People have this natural thing to say, we'll never get any further. But in actuality, what happens is that every generation, we drill deeper into that mystery, we get a better understanding, but we don't have the final answer. And I don't know if we ever will have the final answer. And it'll be, it's kind of depressing thinking, what it would be like if you did. I mean, how sad a world would it be that if we knew everything and there was nothing left to create wonder and to actually study and to investigate? One of the great things about science is every time we answer a question, we find 10 new ones come out of it to explore. And, you know, it's a roundabout way of saying we don't fully know how the universe works. We're getting towards it. But we do it in this incremental way that people make a new discovery. We try and explain what that discovery means, how it works. And we build the levels of that tower to get higher and higher in the overall understanding we have, essentially. You said the space is beautiful. What makes it beautiful? Is it the gigantic planets, the fiery nature of the stars? Is it the stillness, the quietness, the isolated look and feel of the place? What exactly makes it beautiful? There's all sorts of things to unpack on that. And I suspect if you ask 10 people, you get 11 answers. It's one of those things. There's a lot of aesthetic beauty to it. If you look at some of the wonderful astrophotos that people take, they appeal to us beautiful and ethereal, some of the nebulae that you see out of there, some of the objects that you see. In terms of things like watching meteor showers, there's the beauty of seeing something that maybe nobody else on the planet has seen or will see, because each shooting star, each meteor that you see, is an ephemeral transitory phenomenon. It's something like a grain of dust burning up 80 kilometers up in the atmosphere. It's there and it's gone. And if you see it, you might be the only person on the planet looking up who sees it. Or there might be someone 200 kilometers away who sees it as well. But there's very few of you experiencing that same thing at that same time. And I don't know, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not really one to answer what is beauty and what is truth. But to me, you know, space is wonderful. It, it's puzzling, it's fascinating, it's complex. There's always something new to learn. And there's always new vistas to explore and new images coming back. And I think one of the things that I give NASA huge credit to is that all of their missions, whether they go to Mars or to Jupiter, whether they have a telescope like Hubble, 
because of the way they're funded, because of their remit, all of their images are made public immediately. They're freely available to everyone. And that's such a wonderful source of inspiration. You know, you go into a classroom full of kids and you show them a picture of a helicopter flying on Mars. I mean, this is just in the last 12 months. How cool is that? The last couple of months, we suddenly have a drone flying on Mars and they can relate to that. But it's on an alien planet. And it inspires the next generation, drags them in, gets them fascinated too, and keeps that momentum going forward, I think. If you look at a layperson from an astronomy point of view, there are just few things that interest them. UFOs, space travel, living in Mars, and Earth getting shattered by a lost meteorite. I'm interested to get your views on these ones, and perhaps quickly we can go through each one. So let's get started with the UFOs. So, Jonty, looks like many people accept that there is life outside of Earth. There are UFO sighting reports everywhere now, whether it be in the sky or crash-landed somewhere on Earth. Some believe these aliens want to take, take us to their laboratories or they just want to talk to us. And the government has always had a hush-hush approach to these sightings, but they're willing to open up secret files to the public now. And I think that's a shift towards a more kind of transparency more transparency essentially in the way that governments handle information and it's probably the result of people adapting to the internet where you know like and run around the world before a truth has got its boots on where there's so much misinformation and speculation out there that people start arguing for controversy and all the rest of it that suddenly rather than keeping things quiet because nobody's interested you see that people are interested and the best response to the argument that the government's hiding something is to make everything public. Say, look, this is the information we have. And so I think that's actually been a big driver behind the US releasing those records. It was, of course, started by Donald Trump about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, who basically, in an appeal to his voter base, was saying, I'm going to make all this public. And he kind of set up the process to make it happen. But I think it's a good thing. I don't think there's any likelihood that any of the things that are reported as UFOs in those reports turn out to be aliens. And it's a very clear distinction to make. UFO simply means unidentified flying object. And the Americans are now using the terminology UAP, which is unidentified aerial phenomena. It's basically the same thing, though. It just means that there is something happening that we currently don't know what it is. And there's a long history of things that were categorized as UFOs that have since been explained and become identified flying objects or identified aerial phenomena and go on to be the cause of great science, the subject of really good investigation. There are the elves and the sprites, which sound like something out of Middle Earth, but they're phenomena that happen above some of the world's strongest thunderstorms. And they are ethereal, beautiful flashes of light that come up from a thunderstorm up to the ionosphere 100 kilometers high. Relatively faint, really hard to spot. And back in the day, decades ago, pilots were reporting seeing these peculiar flashes above thunderstorms. But cameras weren't good enough to catch them. People weren't seeing them from the ground. So everybody was just doing the usual UFO thing of, you're just hallucinating. It's an optical illusion, whatever. As cameras have got better, and particularly digital cameras, people are now imaging these things regularly from the ground. You know, people will stand hundreds of kilometers away from a great thunderstorm on the Great Plains of America and get these photographs of these red willowy flashes of light going upwards above the storm into the sky. And they've gone from the realm of science fiction and UFOs to being a studied scientific phenomenon. We have the evidence there and people are working out how they work. There's all sorts of stuff like that where 
today's UFO is tomorrow's interesting science question. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's an alien coming to probe you. It just means that there is something we can't currently explain. It might be an optical illusion. It might be an atmospheric phenomenon. It might be something weird going on. It may be another country's secret technology. You know, it could be any of these things. But until the evidence is put in front of the right people, it remains unidentified because you need someone with exactly the right skill set and experience to say, no, hang on, I know what this is. And by opening all this up to broader scrutiny, I guess, you give that opportunity, you give people the chance to look at these things. And I'm sure there are many people around the world digging into these reports with fascination. And gradually over time, they'll find out this one's a hot air balloon that's deflating. That was one of the 144 was an air balloon deflating. And they'll explain them, they'll whittle down to the most interesting ones and then keep digging into those. So for me, I think it's really exciting. And, you know, there's always a possibility that I'm wrong and that eventually we'll find an alien spaceship. I just think it incredibly long odds. I think there are far more likely explanations to be closer to home and more mundane. What about space travel for the common people? It's coming very slowly, and there's a lot of harumphing going on at the minute about the billionaires doing their space tourism thing when the planet is dying and people are starving. And I totally get where people are coming from on that. But I think in terms of the space tourism angle, we're in a position now equivalent to kind of the early 1900s from air travel. You know, just after the Wright brothers had had their first flight, it was viewed as a bit of an oddity. And I think a lot of people would never have imagined that they would fly. And it's not many decades later that travel was commonplace. I know it's slowed down again with COVID, but something goes from being very hard and only a few people can do it. And within a generation, it's the norm. It's kind of a commonplace thing. And we adapt technology so quickly that we don't realize it's happening. I remember probably the clearest cut example of this is back when I was at university and then doing my PhD, I remember getting my first mobile phone and it was the size of a brick and it was a Nokia. And I had it for emergencies only because I was an undergrad. It was just in case something bad happened. And then gradually we all had mobile phones and there were big Nokia bricks with number plates. And then I remember somebody getting a smartphone and it was this new thing where you had a screen that was a touchscreen and it was like a computer and everybody was bemused by this. And then within six months, everybody had them. And it was Looking back at it, it went like the blink of an eye because we just adopt that technology. And at the minute, the space tourism stuff is really an oddity. It's really the preserve of the ultra wealthy. But that doesn't mean that in a decade or two, it won't be because now we've kind of broken the seal on it. We've got the water flowing. Things will just get easier and easier, cheaper and cheaper. And the demand will always be there for something new and exciting. There's a company that I think overly ambitiously is claiming that it's going to build the first orbital hotel. It's kind of circular space station, essentially rotating. You know, if you've seen 2001, think of space station five in 2001, that they fly up to the big rotating circle. It'll be like that. And they're claiming they'll have it online in 2027. I think that's kind of crazily optimistic, to be honest. But the fact that companies are investing in this and thinking of doing it means that they can see a market. You don't get a company investing in building in a hotel that will never get any guests. And so I think we are moving towards the point where it isn't going to be for the masses in the next few years, but in the long term, why not? And that's particularly true if you get to far future and we solve the problems inherent in designing things like space elevators. 
And space elevators keep coming up because from the point of view of the physics, they work, they make perfect sense. Technologically, the requirements are a bit beyond what we can do at the minute, primarily in the strength of the cable. But they're one of these things where they would be stupidly expensive to build, but once they're built, travel to space would be free because people going up weigh a lot less than the minerals and stuff coming down. So taking anything up to low Earth orbit will go from being a million dollars a kilo or a thousand dollars a kilo as it is now. I think we're between about a hundred and a thousand dollars a kilo now to being essentially free because you're the byproduct. You going up are getting a free ride from all the materials coming down the other side. Now that's far future. That's certainly not in the next decade or two. But if we solve those problems, suddenly going to space will be no more expensive than hopping on a flight across country. Getting a hotel like that up there, that would be something for sure. It's going to be a really interesting one, though, to see how that cultural shift goes from at the minute it just being billionaires and essentially racing to see who's the biggest and the smartest, essentially. It's kind of playground politics all over again. How quickly it'll go from that to just being fairly run-of-the-mill, and you'll know it's become commonplace when it's not a news story. I always think that's the thing. Um I often end up going back to thinking of quotes by Terry Pratchett, but I, I remember discussion of newspapers. And the thing is, nobody wants to read Dog Bites Man. But if man bites dog, they'll be really interested because it's an oddity. And it's the same thing. When something stops being reported, good or bad, you know that it's become very commonplace. What about living in Mars? It's an interesting future. Initially, Mars, if we get there and we build living environments there, it'll be a retirement home. It's going to be somewhere that people would go after they've raised their children. And the reason I say that goes back to a fascinating talk we had at one of our conferences a few years ago by a doctor from Tasmania. And this kind of illustrates how spaceflight and also astrobiology, the work I do, is so multidisciplinary. I'm a physicist. I'm an astronomer. In all the work I've done, I've never really considered the effects that low gravity, different conditions would have on pregnancy. Because why would I? It's not my field of expertise. It's not something I'd ever research. And we have this doctor came along to our conference, and it's the only astronomy talk I've ever been in that came with a health warning. So he said at the start, look, I know most of you aren't medics. This talk will be challenging. It's very different from anything you've seen before. There's Here's a trigger warning. There's going to be some fairly gruesome pictures in here, you know. Um, and everybody's eyes perked up at this it's kind of what's going on nothing like this has ever happened before and he went on to give us this 15 minute talk and it's i i tweeted it and it was the most retweeted thing i've ever done because i live tweeted the talk as i went through because it was just blowing my mind and he was talking about this fallacy that people have that we're just going to go to mars and we'll breathe there and you'll have martians and humans will be there having children's and it'll be self-sustaining and he was saying this ain't going to happen anytime soon. And he was going through, as a medic, all the issues that pregnancy entails if the conditions are anything other than slightly off normal. You know, he was talking about how the conquistadors in the 1600s, 1500s, 1600s, plowed into South America, but they never conquered the high Andes. They could go there and fight, but they couldn't settle there because the women became infertile. Because at that high altitude, the conditions were different enough that the problems were there. And the people who lived there, the natives, had had generations to slowly adapt as they moved up there. 
And what he was saying is that's almost normal Earth conditions. It's slightly lower atmospheric pressure. That's about it. If that is what happens when you change by just a tiny hair's breadth, how on Earth are human bodies going to cope at one-third gravity? When gravity is needed for the development of the fetus, for the implantation, for all this stuff. And to us as astronomers, we'd never thought of this. You're in a, a fairly male-dominated room as well because it's a male-dominated discipline. And, you know, me and my colleagues, it's not the first thing that occurs to you. And it just broke people's heads. And that's a benefit of multidisciplinary work and multidisciplinary collaboration. But it was a real kind of splash of cold water to these ideas that Mars is going to be easy. I mean, we know technologically it's not, but you could imagine that if you go and live in the lava tubes, for example, you can seal them, pump them full of air, and it's like living at the Antarctic Station. You've just got reduced gravity. But the reality is it's going to be a very alien situation and one that we're not evolved to deal with. And something that kind of corroborates this, I spoke a lot with Josh Richards, who is a former Brit who's now over here in Australia who used to jump out of aircraft with parachutes on his back in the RAF, I believe. Then became a stand-up comedian um, in the guise of the anger management koala. And he was one of the people who signed up for Mars One, which was this project that was funded by an eccentric Dutchman on the basis of trying to get the first people to Mars by 2021 and i mean obviously it's 2021 now and they're not there so it didn't work out but the idea was sending people on a one-way trip to mars four people funded essentially through a fairly macabre version of big brother in that everything in the capsule would be televised on subscription tv and essentially people will be paying to watch these people potentially die but watch them interact and one of the things that the people who signed up for mars one and there were hundreds of thousands initially josh got into the last few hundred and i don't know what the latest status is but he was telling us and he's used it as a lever to become a science communicator in australia to go to schools and talk to kids in a, about challenging topics because you know i could be the first man on mars what do you want to know no questions off limits and one of the things he was talking about was that in the contracts they had to sign they had to agree that if they were in one of the four people that were the final four they would have to be medically sterilized before they got onto the spacecraft because it was going to be a mixed crew there's only so much you can do when you're traveling for 18 months and you've got to make your own entertainment and then you're there you know things are naturally going to happen but we've no idea how things would work in space you're certainly not sending obstetricians with them so part of the contractual obligation would be you will agree to this and so with all that put together i think at, at least for the first few generations mars will be somewhere that people go to live rather than people being born there so it'll be very much this kind of retirement home place. Because the other thing is, if you spent a long time there with one-third gravity, is it possible to readapt to Earth to come home? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a deep researcher of space, um, although I've always been fascinated by it. So um, over the last couple of months, no, actually many years, I've been reading ancient scriptures, ancient Eastern scriptures. And... At this point, this month, I've, uh, I'm reading one of those books again, and it completely deals with, I mean, it, it, in the beginning part, it deals with astrology, which is about the influence of space, planets, and whatnot on human behavior. But the one that interests me the most is a whole set of thousands and thousands of uh, verses, as they call it, um, deals with the structure of the universe. And it talks about planets, it talks about stars, the distance between them. And I just want to read out some of the stuff that I read there, just just 
for your interest. Uh, it's not for, I mean, we don't have to have a discussion, but look at some of the things I came came across. And this was written five and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure the knowledge was prevalent thousands of years before that. And this is some of the stuff. The sun travels through the universe for a distance of, you may need a pen for this because I don't know, for a distance of 760-800-000 miles at a speed of 16,000 miles at every moment. This is six, five, five and a half thousand years ago. Here's another one. The moon is 800,000 miles above the sun and it moves faster. It crosses the 12 constellations in one lunar month, a distance that takes the sun one year. Here's another one. The total diameter of the universe is approximately four and then zero, 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 zero miles. And it's it's written with complete conviction. So I don't know, what is that? Four billion miles? You know, these were the ancient astronomers, the early astronomers. And one day you will be uh, <laughs> an astronomer from the past. Yeah. What would you like the world to remember you for in, in the field of uh, astronomy? Well, that's a really interesting one because I never, I don't tend to think of myself as an individualist. I don't tend to think of my achievements. It's just we're part of a team we're advancing. So just before I get to that, though, I think it's fascinating looking back at this early stuff because there is a growing awareness of the value of non-traditional knowledge, but also non-Western knowledge. And there's been a trying to find a polite way of saying this, but there's been a certain amount of egotism involved in the fact that the knowledge that we hold dear is very much from the Greeks and the Romans onwards, and it's the Anglosphere and Europe and America. And things that come from beyond that have historically been given far more short shrift than they ought. And there's a growing awareness now of the wealth of knowledge that other civilizations have developed and stored um, both going back into the depths of history and things like the Babylonians, who were incredible timekeepers, had an incredible grasp on a lot of the things that we're talking about, but also in terms of the knowledge of the traditional owners of the land all over the place, particularly here in Australia, where um, the Indigenous Australians are still given a very um, bad roll of the dice, unfortunately. But there is knowledge passed down in the oral histories here that dates back tens of thousands of years and is still maintained in a way that is accurate, scientifically valuable. And for generations, those who came over more recently from overseas have poo-pooed that and you know, denigrated those people. But in actuality, there's a wealth of wisdom and information there that has been passed down and incredible depths of knowledge that are still there waiting to be tapped. And I know there are some really inspirational Aboriginal astronomers um, coming through now who are tapping into the knowledge from their land and their people and building that into their own astronomical research, tying it in with kind of the Western knowledge to great benefit and to great value. So I think that's fabulous. In terms of where we'll be known further down the line, I, I guess the thing that I'm probably most proud of as a contribution is killing the idea that Jupiter is solely a protector to the Earth, which is something you get in 
lots of popular science shows even to today. It's this idea that if Jupiter wasn't there, the Earth would be pummeled by impacts so very frequently that life wouldn't be possible and Jupiter protects us from impacts. When in fact, it's far more complicated. And if Jupiter wasn't there, the Earth would be hit less often than it currently is. It's a much more complicated thing. And that's something I spent a lot of time looking into a bit more than a decade ago now with a dear friend and mentor of mine who's unfortunately no longer with us, Professor Barry Jones. And that work is fabulous. It was really good fun. I will be revisiting it at some point. But that's one of the few areas where I can see a kind of really widely held belief that I've done something to um, remedy and improve and actually really contributed to the knowledge. So that is something I'm very proud of. You know, you said earlier in the conversation, and we're coming towards the end of our talk, you're you're not a philosopher, but an astronomer, scientist. I disagree. I think you are a philosopher as well. And I think as you continue in this profession, staring into space, uh, understanding why things come into existence and why things disappear into the oblivion, I think I think your philosophical nature is bound to come out. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think there is an astronomer and a philosopher in all of us as we get through our day-to-day -day life. Absolutely. I think science is often described as natural philosophy. And there's a long heritage of the two going together. One of the things that I wish had been later in my studies, actually, when I was in the first year of my undergrad study, one of the courses that we took was physics and philosophy. And it was essentially about the foundations of the scientific method. And as an 18-year-old, I didn't see the point. I didn't get it. And part of me really wishes they'd bumped it back to kind of the final year when I had a little bit more time to be rounded, ha have it when I'm 20, 21. Would have been a, a real difference because that was, in retrospect, fascinating, and I wish I remembered more of it. But a lot of what we do is built on the way we think and the language we use. And there's a lot of interesting discussions I've seen in the Twitterverse about how language impacts thought. So it isn't necessarily purely that our thought shapes our language, but actually the language you speak shapes the thoughts you have and the way you think about problems. And I think there was a study recently looking at different things in Europe with people from different languages and heard someone talking on the radio a while back as well about um, the way people are financially prudent or um, not prudent and seeing significant differences between different languages based on the way those languages treat the future linguistically. And the argument was that languages without the same strong future tense led to people who were less concerned with future outcomes. And it impacted their financial behavior. You know, there's all this weird kind of stuff linking. So you do wonder with our science, what science there is to be added because of the different thought processes people have because of different languages. And it's one of the great things that comes to the fact that science is a an international endeavor. It's a very multicultural endeavor. It's a multidisciplinary endeavor. And that means lots of people come at the same problem with different perspectives. And that can only be a good thing. Thank you, Jonti. To finish off our conversation, um, what message do you have for the people in general, and especially the youngsters and the children of the world? I think for the youngsters, but I think for anybody really, it's follow what you're passionate about. Because much as I work far more hours than I should do, and you know, you can get run down with that, one of the greatest privileges you'll have in life is if you get to do what you love. And you're going to have to spend a significant fraction of your life working, at work, earning money to do all the other things you do. 
And if all you're doing is working to earn money, that's fine. But if you can do something that you really enjoy whilst you're doing it, then work doesn't feel like work anymore. And if you, I had the great good fortune of discovering what I was passionate about when I was still young enough to direct my study to get into that. But these days, with the advent of the concept of lifelong learning, you can go back to do it. And the people that I teach at USQ, we have not just traditional school leavers, we have people who are retirees, we have people who are changing careers, who have spent 30 years working in a profession and decided that now's the time to follow their dreams. I am supervising PhD students, a number of whom are older than I am, who are coming back to astronomy after careers. I, I've got a couple of PhD students who are coming from different academic disciplines, one who's doing their second PhD, because they've decided that they are, are a biologist, but they also want to do astronomy. So nowadays, there's always that opportunity to say, I can do this, I can look forward, I can take the plunge and look at doing something I love. So what that means is that if you don't discover what you love until later in life, you still get the chance to pursue it. And I think that's fabulous. Thank you, Jonty. Yes, dream big, aim for the stars. And if you miss, you may land on the moon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything that you've said. And I can't wait to follow you and your contributions to the to the world of space research. And I look forward to connecting with you one day. And I look forward to meeting you one day as well. Thank you. Fingers crossed in the post-COVID world. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.